Hello and welcome to another edition of Resistance TV. Uh, we're going to be discussing the initial conclusions of the public inquiry into the spy cops outrage this evening. Uh, the inquiry, as I'm sure many viewers will know, has been examining the conduct of undercover police officers who spied on a thousand political groups between 1968 to at least 2010. Unsurprisingly, most of the groups that were spied on were socialists, but animal rights groups and environmental groups were also being targeted. It seems that veganism was considered way too subversive for the British establishment. So I'm delighted to welcome Paul Heron onto the show this evening. Paul's a lawyer and a socialist activist, actually. Um, he's the legal director and senior solicitor at the Public Interest Law Centre, and he's an executive committee member of the Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers. Paul represents 11 core participants at the Spy Cops inquiry, including the former Labour MP Dave Nellis, uh, the Stop the War Coalition and CND. Hi, Paul. Uh, thanks for joining us this evening. Hope you're okay. Hi, Chris. Thanks for the invite. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's great to be on uh, Resistance TV. Thank you. Nice one, mate. Yeah, thanks. I want to maybe start then, really, just uh, if you could say a little bit about Sir John Mitting's report, because it only covers the period from 1968 to 1982, doesn't it? So a, a lot of sort of contemporary people, I suppose, who've been targeted by the state, um, you know, will, will not, I mean, some of them will be, obviously, but, but many of them, of course, won't be covered by this initial uh, report, will it? Um, you know, that's absolutely right. I mean, the report itself, which was released, I think, last week, if I recall, um, covers only 1968 to 82, as you say. That's, in effect, what's called Tranche 1 or Part 1. But there's many other parts to come going forward and and it, and it takes it up with regards to the special demonstration squad up to 2008 um the as you probably know Chris the the uh, undercover policing inquiry or the UCPI um was uh, announced further to pressure placed on the then home secretary Theresa May and she announced uh, the undercover police inquiry, in fact, in 2015, as a result of pressure, particularly of the women who, unknown to them, had sexual relationships with undercover police officers who infiltrated many, uh, as you say, socialist left-wing anarchist groups uh, during the period, and also under the pressure from the family of Stephen Lawrence, and that was granted. Tranche one itself, yeah, it covers 68 to uh, 82 and really concentrates on many of the groups that were in the forefront of activism during that time. So it, it began really to start to spy on the likes of the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign, but also began the process of looking at all kinds of groups from the Troops Out Movement, Socialist yeah. Party, and uh, other groups like that. So that's it, in essence, part the, the first part of the Undercover Police Inquiry and the first part of, I, I would I would guess, ongoing reports over the last two to three years. Right. And just say a little bit about the special demonstration, the demonstration squad that you mentioned there, because I, I suspect a lot of you will not be familiar with that. What were they and what did they do? So the Special Demonstration Squad, or the SDS, was formed mainly after the first uh, 
uh, Vietnam solidarity campaign demonstration for people who are too young maybe to even know what that was. It was a it was a broad based campaigning body which campaigned against the Vietnam War in the sixties and the seventies and also Britain's involvement in in the Vietnam War itself. And the SDS was particularly concerned and was set up as a result of the first demonstration, which resulted in uh, some public order, but obviously it was it was overplayed, I, I would say, during that period. And at that time, and significantly, maybe we can explore this later, the SDS sent individual officers, uh, you know, they grew the hair a little bit, grew a bit of a beard, and sat at the back of uh, Vietnam Solidarity Campaign branch meetings at public meet, and just made a few notes and fed it up to the, uh, their, 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 their commanding officers so that in their eyes, or the, the, the arguments of the Metropolitan Police Service, to make sure that they were ready for the next demonstration in 68. And obviously those techniques and the, that development of spying obviously developed over the next two, three, four years into something far more sophisticated, far more invasive uh, as as the years went by. And it's interesting, uh, Chris, that one of the officers who was uh, questioned during the course of the inquiry actually said, I thought after the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign was wound up in 1971-72 that actually the Special Demonstration Squad would be closed down. And of course, it wasn't. It wasn't just closed down. The MPS at the behest of other organizations, which we might want to go into, um, double down on their techniques and develop their techniques of infiltration. So the police officers were not just in the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign for six to 12 months. They actually then went deep undercover and were often involved in campaigning organizations for four to five years. Do you find it surprising that uh, this squad was established under a Labour government and it was actually a Tory government that ended up agreeing to about this inquiry. I mean, I mean counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think historically certain leading figures in the Labour government's gone by and certainly in the Labour Party's gone by have often been, um, you know, almost against the Labour movement at the best. Yeah, well, that's uh, the campaigning instincts of the Labour movement and the campaigning movements and, and seem to be even more terrified of campaigners, socialists, trade unionists and, and campaigners generally than, than, than even some Tory governments, although obviously we wouldn't want to go too far in that because Tory governments have equally been oh, yeah. uh, you know, terrified of it. Um, what what is is surprising is the fact that for the Labour governments to Tory governments to Labour governments to Tory governments double down on this technique. And let's be clear about this: they were governments, cabinets, senior civil servants, and the security services were all customers of the special demonstration squad over the course of the uh, of tranche one and which as we say 68 to 1982 why is it taking so long 
to reach a conclusion. And we've only got to 1982. It's taken them years to get there. And I don't know how many other years we're going to have to wait to, you know, get yeah. the accident report. I think there's a, there's a number of, of reasons for that. And sadly, I'd have to say that the bulk of them, in my opinion, the Metropolitan Police Service have used every tactic under the sun to delay the, the progress of the undercover policing inquiry. They've insisted on numerous um, restriction orders. They've insisted on redactions to uh, documents. They have ensured that many of the police officers themselves have not given live evidence. They've insisted that many of the officers do not even give their cover name, let alone their, their own name. And yet at the same time as they are you know, refusing to give their name and their cover name, they've used the human right, their own human rights, to defend the idea that they should have um, you know, privacy, whilst at the same time, you know, they they were happy to, you know, be all over the privacy of many of the activists they spied on throughout the nineteen seventies and early nineteen eighties. And it, it's kind of laughable in the sense that they, they have done that. And and unfortunately I'd have to say that you know, and I, and I, you know, the, the the inquiry itself has probably not been hard enough on ensuring that certain things are done quicker and um, and 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 better. When you contrast the the way the undercover policing inquiry have acted with the COVID inquiry, COVID inquiry have uh, faced down a judicial review from the cabinet office to ensure that the WhatsApp messages of Boris Johnson. To the to the COVID inquiry, I don't feel that sometimes the undercover police inquiry have acted in the same kind of um, way that the other that, that a public inquiry should do, and so it that's that's kind of the delays that come forward. But having said that, the disclosure that we have seen, which many people who watch this or listen to this can go and see. Uh, to the Undercover Police Inquiry website, you go and search some of that, has been extremely revealing as to how the tactics have changed of the Special Demonstration Squad and also has been revealing over who the customers of the Special Demonstration Squad have been and have changed over the years as well. What justification have they given for the reductions? Well, the justifications have mainly been privacy. And right. so in terms of, um, you know, uh, you, many people will go onto the Undercover Police Inquiry website and they will look at some of the documentation that's there. Or they can go to uh, Declassified, Declassified UK, where I've written a number of articles which directs people to certain documentation. You'll see that some of the, some of the issues have been redacted for, for genuine privacy reasons, because obviously certain people might not want the names to be out there at certain times. The other reasons are because the police have, certainly some of the redactions that have happened is because the, the police themselves have insisted that certain redactions take place. And the, the, the only defense I could probably give the, the, the UCPI, the Undercover Police Inquiry, is of course they've had to, to 
to play a fine line between the demands of the police and the demands of the of the of core participants and those who've been spied on. But I must admit, in my feeling, and certainly my client's feeling is that sometimes the inquiry have been too willing to side with the police at different times when it comes to reactions than uh, you know than 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 actually siding with core participants and and those who have been spied on during the course of the of the undercover uh, police inquiry. Having said that, as I said before, Christy, one of the things that has been revealing about the disclosure we have had is if we go back to 1968, the undercover officers were at the back of a meeting taking a few notes and reporting about potential public order or potential subversive uh, you know, uh, activities of left-wing campaigning groups. But what we see change is who the customers are. Initially, customers were leading police, you know, the, the MPS, if you like, Metropolitan Police Service. But later on, the customers were definitely the security services. The security services, MI5 in particular, play a role in directing where SDS special demonstration squad officers should go and the kind of information that they're looking for. And so whilst the in the first tranche, the Metropolitan Police Service lawyers have been saying, well, we needed to do this spying because of public order or subversives, or subversive, you know, to check on subversion and subversives. That has largely been dismissed in this first report by admitting and by the undercover police inquiry. And so it begs the question, well, if the public order issue is dismissed, if the reasons to check on subversives has been dismissed, what are the reasons for the special demonstration squad to continue? Because let's be clear about it. It continued from 1982 right up to 2008. And I think for my clients in particular, that's a question that they would really like answered. Because if it wasn't for public order reasons, it's not so for, for allegations of being subversives, which of course there's a whole debate over that separately. And if it's not for those reasons, then indeed what was the reason for the SDS to continue? Well, Thatcher coined the term the enemy within during the miners' strike, and I suspect it was, uh, it was that mentality that, that, that drove the uh, decision to spy on socialist groups and what is you know particularly egregious in my opinion anyway as a former Labour Party member of 44 years standing no longer a party member it's really gone down the tubes is that as we were saying earlier it was actually this process started by a Labour government and continued by a Labour government but do you remember when will part two be published then do you think Paul which I think was the one which will be of most contemporaneous interest to to people won't it because you know most of the victims who you know, or are involved in that period, they, they they will still be alive, but many of the people in the earlier part have, sadly will have, will, have, will have passed away. Yeah, so Tranche 2, or Part 2, Tranche 2, uh, covers 1983 to around about 1992, 1993. So about, about go a 10 on. Year period. So, so, so it doesn't even go all the way up to 2010 then? No, no, that's, that comes later on in Tranche 3, Tranche 4. So Tranche right. 2 um, will 
probably as as most people will identify will look at the the peace movement the campaign for nuclear disarmament maybe one of the areas that the trans two will cover it will certainly and i'm sure will cover the minor strike it may also cover issues like whopping yes indeed it may also even go so far as to cover the poll tax movement the movements against the poll tax itself yeah, it may even look at Labour councils who in the 1980s were having their own battles with central governments. And I'm thinking in particular Lambeth Council. Yes, and Liverpool, well. yes, indeed. And the other rules as well. But. And, 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 and there are those are the kind of issues that it could cover. As we understand it, um, we will, our clients who are core participants in the trans two, will probably look to be getting disclosure but from the um the 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 inquiry later this year with the inquiry then sitting for several weeks in the summer of next year 2024 to examine uh not just the documentation but obviously to cross-examine court participants meaning activists who were spied on and also officers who did spying if you like and I would guess that a, and a further, I'm guessing, although we've got no indication at this point, a further interim report may come out at the end of that part, or it may go then straight into tranche three in the next year, and maybe there'll be an interim report combining two and three. We've got no indication as to whether there'll be an interim report. But as you say, Chris, there are going to be significant um movements and organizations that will be looked at during that period um and and some of the issues that you know some of the campaigns and issues i suspect will be will be looked at by the inquiry itself so in terms of time scales then uh tranche two is going to be uh when do you think and tranche well, three and four when, when can we expect that so i think what we're looking at and what we've been advised by the the undercover policing inquiry is the whole of the inquiry should finish in 2026. So there will be a bit of a gallop on now. But we- oh, okay, okay, yeah. That, that, so that transform will we'll include the. There are, there are, I think, um, there are three modules. Module one is split into five or six tranches. So yeah. those six tranches in module one will probably finish by 2026. And then module two and three will will probably finish fairly quickly after that. But it's this first module, which is going to take the longest amount of time. And we promise that 2026. It may run over into 27, but certainly it will get a gallop on over the next two or three years. Right. Okay. That's, that's interesting. And, and of course you're saying... As I understand it anyway, it's going to go up to at least 2010. But is it likely to go beyond that? I suspect the spy hasn't stopped. I wouldn't have thought. I don't know what you think about that. But, I mean, what about the period beyond 2010? So the terms of reference uh, have asked the the inquiry to look at undercover policing. And, and largely, we would say the undercover policing they're looking at is what we, my clients, would certainly deem undercover political policing. Yes. So... I mean, there may be even an argument for undercover policing if it's serious crime, etc. Yeah, oh, God. political policing um, is mainly focusing on two squads. The first squad is the special demonstration squad, 
And then the second squad is the what's called the NPOIU, which is the National Public Order and Intelligence Unit, which ran for a few years after the Special Demonstration Squad. And that had particular interest, as you said in your opening, in the animal rights movement and the environmental movement. So that's particularly what it was looking at. The SDS is looking at particularly, not exclusively, but left-wing uh, movements, trade unions, issues around blacklisting, peace movements, etc. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mentioned animal rights partly because uh, declaring interest. I mean, I've been an animal rights campaigner myself from the mid-1970s and a vegan since 1976. So I was interested to see it out. You know, veganism was seen as a kind of subversive uh, uh, dietary uh, decision by moral dietary decision by, by people. But I mean, just on a, I mean, it might sound an obvious, stupid question in some ways, but I guess some people might watch it might say, why, why should we be concerned about these uh, undercover operations? I mean, I think, the, I think the first, I think the first thing is, I think for historical reasons, I think it's important for the, particularly the socialist labor movement, but you know, all campaigners to be aware and to understand, if you like, what has gone on and understand the role that the police played during this period. So I'll give you one example, and I pinpointed this at the start. In 68, we, we suspect, and we our clients have argued, and we've certainly put submissions to the inquiry, that certainly by the early 1970s, the role of the SDF's officers, the Special Demonstration Squad, undercover officers, their role changed. And their role changed, we suspect, at the behest of the security services and also government. And that role changed from officers sitting at the back of me of meetings taking notes to actually officers starting to take positions and in some cases leading positions in organizations. So I'll give you an example. In what a client that I represent, Richard Chesson, was an activist in the Troops Out movement. And he set up a branch at the behest of an undercover officer called Rick Gibson. His real name was Richard Clark. And Richard Clark, through his activities in setting up a branch in Southeast London, rose through the organization to at one point actually becoming, for a period of about six to nine months, the leader of the Troops Out movement. So you had, at one point, the Troops Out movement being led by an undercover officer, being the leader of the Troops Out movement. And this is not unusual. And the reason why it's important is because the officers who, who took positions, often as treasurers or paper organizers, in the case of SWP branches, started to sift information through to their security services and through to government. In the cases of the SWP, two officers took leading positions in the Right to Work campaign, which was organized by the uh, Socialist Workers' Party in the yeah. late, 1970, yeah. late 1980s. But they were in the national headquarters, and they were taking photocopies of trade union branches who supported the Right to Work campaign. Now, the reason that's important is so that we understand that when 
the powers that be in this country talk about us being in a democracy and uh, we, you know, we have this grand democracy that actually we had something akin to a, a Stasi light organization that was prepared to open special branch files on tens, if not hundreds of thousands of activists, some very committed activists, some very just people getting involved. And it's yeah. important that we understand that, you know, this is the role that the police played in derailing movements, but also the the amount of information that was hoovered up by the special demonstration squad at the behest of government, at the behest of the security services. And we want to know what was the reason for this? What was the reason when in the first stage of this inquiry, the inquiry has concluded there was no public order legitimate reason and there was no subversive legitimate reason. And so serious questions need to be asked. And that's why this inquiry is so important in my opinion. Paul, is there any evidence that the undercover police officers who, you know, got into positions of influence acted as argent provocateurs or were they mainly, you know, monitoring and just, you know, as it were, uh, filtering all that information and, and, and feeding yeah. it back? Well, at this stage, in terms of the disclosure, it's, um, it's generally quite hard to see that. However... Reports by activists that have come out, particularly in the Garden newspaper, so the likes of Rob Evans, who's been he's been a pioneer of of covering this of this uh, work and and the role of the undercover officers. Yeah, certain activists have made, particularly later on in the in the in the two thousands, if you like, made accusations that officers did act as argent provocateurs. Um, so whilst at this point from memory, there's no disclosure uh, showing that, admittedly, we don't know whether we've had every piece of, of disclosure, but certainly uh, in the later years of the SDS, uh, the reports have been you know, published in The Guardian, for instance, where activists do say that officers did act very, in fact, in a, in a role as an Asian provocateur, serious accusations have been made against officers to try and get activists to to take part in extremely, you know, extreme criminal violence, um, which, um, you know, obviously the inquiry will need to look into at, yeah. at a later date. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think these revelations say about the state of our democracy then? You started to touch on that, Paul, but I mean, in general, what do you think? I mean, what what I think has shocked me is, I mean, I, you know, you introduced me as a you know a socialist, and I certainly am, and I've been involved in trade unions and and the labour movement for some time. There's always been, as you and I both know, and I'm sure people are watching. There's always been accusations of monitoring, whether it's been the Economic League or the Word yeah. Blacklist Support Group of Donna Ryle, the Consulting Association. And there's always been those accusations. And, and it's certainly been the case that that's always been a discussion around the labour movement. Um, I think what the, 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 the disclosure which 
we've been provided with so far. Many people, if you go, as I say, and encourage people to go onto the uh, inquiry website to just have a look at it. What's actually shocked me is the extent of the monitoring that people who have been involved in anti-racist campaigns, involved in uh, campaigns against the uh, restrictions on abortion, uh, campaigns in police monitoring or whatever, that they all had special branch files opened on them. And the extent of that is quite revealing. I would say, I mean, we came across a document, which again, I've, I've covered in the in one of the declassified and the articles I did for Declassified UK, that upwards of 900,000 people had slips, which were then put into a special branch. If three or four slips are then put in, so Chris Williamson appears three or four times, five times on a slip provided by police through to special branch, a file is likely to have been opened on you. And we suspect there are hundreds of thousands of files been opened in special branch. And people can go in. And these files, by the way, are opened on hundreds of individuals and hundreds of organizations. In your opening, you said hundreds of organizations have spied on. In fact, a thousand groups have been spied on uh, yeah. by the Metropolitan Police between uh, 1968 and 2008. So it's quite, the extent has actually shocked me that uh, how much has is, is actually gone on. Yeah. Is the deep state out of control then, Paul? Um, well, <laughs> on this evidence so far, um, it's hard to, to to say that there's there's not a problem um, and uh, there's not a serious problem. Um, I mean, I think um, the, the interconnection between uh, the Special Demonstration Squad, MI5, uh, you know, cabinets and, uh, and indeed the Economic League and the later the Consultant Association, the interchange of information that has gone on is, is quite staggering. And I think, you know, serious questions need to be asked going forward. Uh, Who's going to ask those questions though? Because the political class seems to have been taken prisoner, don't they? I mean, I don't know. You well, I, I mean, you know, the, the 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 political class, sadly, you know, you know, have to a large extent, uh, you know, the 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 they, from my own personal perspective, it feels like they 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 they're bought and paid for by you know big big business and capital, and and there is a serious problem. Uh, I was telling. No, I was going to say, I was, I was, no, I was just going to say, I was on a podcast the other day with with George Galloway, and we we were we were talking about, you know, what's what's happened to the political class, and uh, we were talking about actually my um, intervention when I was still an MP and asking difficult questions about the integrity issues. What one, just one example, and uh, and he cited uh, you know people like Tandy Al and uh, you know Tony Bed obviously and others who were who were tenacious and relentless and asking these awkward and difficult questions. So the point I was putting to George was that the political class seemed to be, you know, useless really. You know, I got the kind of, you know, the deep state sort of out of control and there's you know, there's no there's no check or balance, it seems to me. And I mean George's view was that um 
you know, people like Tamdi and myself, me to a lesser extent, and others, Dave Ellis, obviously, you know, it's like the awkward squad, for want of a better phrase, that's the kind of majority of me, the way in which they've often been, people like those have been described. Asking these difficult questions did actually, to some extent, um, you know, restrict the uh, uh, the more egregious uh, excesses, perhaps. I don't know whether you would uh, would agree with that, but like you say, it seems to me anyway, at the moment anyway, the people class, you know, across the spectrum in the House of Commons, as you say, you know, bought, bought and paid for, but I don't know if you've got any place on that. I mean, from a personal perspective, I, I joined the Labour Party when I was 15, um, and I remember going to a ward meeting, and this was in Wallasey, so in Merseyside, where I'm from. Now, at that time, Wallasey was a, was a conservative-held seat. It hasn't been yeah. for a long time. Look, it's interesting that, that at that ward meeting, this is just a ward meeting, I could probably say there was probably in the region of 30-odd people at that ward meeting. Bearing in mind that it wasn't a Labour seat. I remember the ward meetings that I went to and later when I got involved in the Young Socialist, but certainly the ward meetings I went to, there was a cut and thrust of debate that was developed. There was a, there was a right wing in the Labour Party, which, to be honest with you, would probably be considered the left wing now of the Labour Party. <laughs> that was what done, yeah. And there was a very much a, a, a Labour a, a Labour left wing, often trade unionists and, and factory workers. But what was interesting is that ward meeting also had a reflection of working class people in there. Um, and that was in a Conservative held seat. Mm. And that's the difference is that I think that the Labour Party for, for some time um, has lost its has lost its way because it's abandoned the people who founded it and vote for it and, um, you know, campaign for it and door knock for it and all the rest of it. And I think in my personal point of view, Corbyn, uh, the, the rise of Jeremy Corbyn was an aberration in some ways and actually saved the Labour Party temporarily. And I yeah. worry the Labour Party's existence going forward because I don't think it represents... Uh, the interests of working class people, even in a tiny way, because those MPs who get elected are no longer, and certainly for some time, are no longer accountable to their constituencies. Well, my only worry about the existence of the Labour Party is that it does continue to exist. And, uh, you know, my sort of uh, ambition now is to do everything I can to destroy the Labour Party because in my opinion it's a bigger barrier to socialism than, than, than the Tories are because they're a bunch of frauds and they kind of give the illusion of, of democracy while in reality sustaining the, the status quo. But just going back to uh, and you might want to come into that as well but just going back to the, to the spy, spot, uh, spy cop stuff uh, but, I mean why do you think the corporate media hasn't given it more attention? You know there's been articles in the Guardian so there's been some coverage but I mean this to me seems to be a like a really terrible scandal in the act. There's not been that much, I don't think. I mean, I said, you know, you're talking, funny enough, I was talking to uh, my my daughter-in-law today, and um, I said, I'm doing this podcast, uh, you know, with, uh, with with yourself about the about the spy cop revelations, and she she didn't know about the spy cop revelations, you know. So a lot of us who were in that kind of political bubble, I mean, obviously towards this, you know, we, we're absolutely across this, and we, you know, we're aware of it. But to the wider general public, they're not, and that's big, in my opinion, a real massive failure. Of, of the corporate media, but I mean, do you take the same view? Do you think there has been su sufficient coverage, or, or, or am I being unfair or not? Um, it, it, it's, I, I mean, I think it's been sporadic, 
Um, but overall, it's been largely disappointing. I mean, as I said before, the likes of Rob Evans has done a you know a tenacious job covering it in the in the Guardian, and there is sporadic articles here and there. But that tends to be as a result of pressure from. Uh, I, I would say I would hats off to particularly the women who pioneered, you know, who, who were uh, deceived into sexual relationships with uh, uh, many of these undercover officers. They have done a, an amazing job at keeping it to the forefront. So, you know, it's obviously been covered in the Daily Mail. But really, in terms of the uh, the scandal which is, you know, which is on fault, which is on, you know, which hasn't folded, even on the tranche one, the scandal that has been unfolded, it has been largely disappointing. And and it really, you know, what's been, you know, the print media have done bits and bobs, even the Telegraph and the Times and bits and bobs has been quite sporadic, but there's been very little serious journalism from the TV, the main TV stations, BBC, ITV and, and Sky, etc. There's been very little beyond, you know, just, you know, the very, you know, the very broad brush, if at all. And, and you know, to be honest with you, it has been extremely disappointing. But but the thing is, we, the core participants I represent, and certainly all the core participants I've spoken to, I think they're in for the long haul. We want to shake the tree. We want to ensure that any information that comes out is spread far and wide and in as many ways that we can do it, whether it's, you know, through, you know, your, your own TV channel, your own podcasts, through, you know, web newspapers like The Canary and Declassified to, to, to broad as possible, and to try and get a clear as message as possible to the scale of what's happened in the name of, quote, democracy. Because, you know... In years gone by, quite rightly, fingers have been pointed at, you know, authoritarian regimes all over the world for the kind of surveillance that there's been. But I really do think that the, the surveillance that's taken place, that's been uncovered even in Tranche 1 so far, is of, you know, epic proportions, really. And, and it's shame hasn't been more... But you know we we just got to keep on plugging away. Keep, keep, keep on keeping on. What, what, what do you think? The, why do you think that is? I mean, just because so corporate media's in the pockets of the uh, you know the elite. I think there's a, there's an element of that. I think there's also I think the problem with news media today it, it lives on sound sound bites and yeah forms. And I think unfortunately some of the detail that's involved in this and how. We've had to piece together the various um, disclosure documents to piece together a picture of what's going on. It requires a journalism which, unfortunately, not many mainstream media outlets are prepared to really persevere with. And of course, that that's because um, you know there's the soundbite elements, but there's also that lots of media organisations, uh, you know, are bought and paid for by. Two or three wealthy. Fair enough, fair enough. But the state broadcaster, Paul, gave an hour to the anti Semitism scam in the Labour Party on Panorama. They gave an hour to it, and it was a total scam. 
And yet, you know, this, which is a genuine scandal against ordinary people, you know, uh, victims of, of, of the state, I mean, you know, women, like you say, you know, being impregnated by undercover officers. I mean, and to be fair, the media has covered that, but my goodness me, there is so much more they could be reported, and yet they're, they're sort of uh, absent from, from the scene, it seems to me. I mean, I mean the reality is we've got Panorama, but I think I think there's there's other programmes which back in the day probably would have covered it. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the world in actions of this. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. Would have done it. And I know that, you know, Pilger would have been, you know, probably. Oh, yes. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. You know. so I, th I think there has been there has been a failure of by mainstream media. But there again, I think mainstream media has been hollowed out on by of, of journalists who probably would have covered this back in the day. It's been hollowed out so that there's there's not the same kind of interest because of course the um you know many of the journalists come from backgrounds where actually this is this requires too much work and they'd sooner report on whether there's a right or wrong about George Osborne being, you know, yeah, an orange confetti. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, conversations about that, whether that's right or wrong, when the reality is it would take time and effort to really dig down and do some decent reporting on what, what's gone on so far. Uh, yeah. And there's so many reasons for that, and you've pointed some of them out, and certainly, you know, the, the lack of quality journalism is 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 unfortunately is a disease at the moment yes indeed i mean and uh, some of the quality journalism that we did get on things like um after Batanzi's uh, going underground which was on uh rt and so on and of course has now been banned i mean it's yeah you couldn't make it up really and in, in a so-called democracy that you know dissenting voices it seems you know will not be, uh, be tolerated but just finally uh paul um what would you say or what would your advice be to people i mean how can you know, how can all the people fight against this abuse? What can they do, this abuse of, of state power? I mean, I think the first thing is, the most important thing is, is people shouldn't be afraid to organise. People shouldn't be afraid to campaign. Because despite all this monitoring uh, and despite all this, uh, you know, kind of uh, name checking and, and all the rest of it, you know, the, the National Front were defeated in the 1970s. Yes, yes, indeed. Absolutely. The, the miners organised tenaciously throughout the 80s and nearly came to the brink of yeah. the Thatcher government. The poll tax was organised and defeated as well. And different, you know, different uh, campaigns have been successful on a local level. Tens of thousands of campaigns have been successful on a local level and you know so campaigning has achieved great things and people shouldn't be afraid to campaign so that's the message which notwithstanding all this kind of surveillance they haven't been able to defeat movements of people in mass numbers or even in on in in local communities campaigning against even small things so i think that's the main message that has to come across yeah. Do not be afraid of campaigning, even though this is going on. And I think in terms of, you know, the point that has to be made as well is going back to the mainstream media. Young people in particular do not look to the mainstream media now today. They go to 
Al Jazeera, for instance, they will go to um, uh, websites such as the Canary, the Intercept, or uh, you know, Declassified, your own TV station, Socialist TV, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think their failure to report on this kind of thing really ultimately doesn't matter because through resistance TV and through other forms of communication, young people, working class people are more sophisticated now in looking for what they want. And more so the mainstream media for not covering it. Well, listen, Paul, thanks very much indeed for taking the, the time out to speak to us, Steve. It's been incredibly interesting, if, if, if depressing, but also, I think, uplifting as well with your final rallying cry at the end of your contribution this evening. So so thank you so much for doing that. Finally, how can people follow your work, Paul? Do you have a, are you on social media or that? How can people follow um, so, so we, the, the Public Interest Law Centre is on social media, uh, which is on Twitter at public law center so at public law center we also have a website which is uh www.pilc.org.uk and of course look at declassified look at resistance tv look at uh spies out of lies i would also make a big plug for the women who campaign uh under the moniker of spies out of lives they've got a website and I, look, uh, I would certainly recommend that they also look at that because they do some amazing work, campaigning work. Nice. Well, th thanks again, Paul. And thank everybody for watching this evening. Uh, all being well, we'll be back next week at the same time, 7 o'clock on Wednesday on Resistance TV. So until then, this is Chris Livingston saying bye for now. <laughs>